0: This is the first Sunday in December. Okay? So, it is official. Despite what a lot of retailers have told you that it started a long time ago, we're officially in the Christmas season. Okay? Because before now, you know, we're caught up with other stuff, Thanksgiving and, you know, other stuff. and But now, we're serious about it. Okay? Uh, we start to think of... Uh, you know, uh, Christmas trees and shopping and, you know, shepherds and wise men and angels and babies and swaddling clothes. So, why is it that we've got a message now about killing sin? I mean, it's kind of incongruous, isn't it? I even had to put on the Christmas scarf just to divert attention from the title. Well, the simple answer is, this is the next thing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But I want to challenge you here, okay? Why do we celebrate, celebrate Christmas? I would submit to you, it's not because a baby laid in a manger, but rather because that baby became the Lamb of God, suffered and died, and then rose for you and me. OK? So today we're going to go on, uh, and we're going to start in Matthew 5 verses 28, 29 and 30, excuse me, 29 and 30. And there it says, "If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. Better for you that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And last month, we considered a, this same passage with the, the previous two verses in uh, Jesus' teaching on sexual sins versus the contortions of the scribes and Pharisees. And there we learned that adultery, according to Jesus, starts in the eye gate and is committed first in the heart as coveting or lust. We discussed the doctrines of sin, regeneration, hell, holiness, and redemption. And we learned that without those doctrines, without that basic understanding, our faith is meaningless. Today we want to focus more broadly on the issue of how to kill or avoid sin. Of course, the context is sexual sin. When you read, though, verses 29 and 30, you've got to ask, why so drastic? Well, consider the teaching of the whole Bible, and let's just look at Proverbs 6. It's not on your study sheet, as most of the verses are today, but let me just read it to you. It says there, My son, observe the commandment of your father, And do not forsake the law of your mother for the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light and reproofs of discipline are the way of life for what purpose to keep you from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, the place where adultery is most often committed, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread and an adulterous hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. So I think it's pretty clear from this and other passages that God knows That sexual temptation and what it leads to is a huge stumbling block for mankind. So now what do we do about it? This is not just a question of not doing certain things. Rather, we've got to deal with the state of our hearts as a result of the fall. And so on the outline, there are a number of ways that we want to observe and grasp where we are. We're going to start with, we've got to understand the nature of sin and its consequences. Just some bullet points here. Sin is a power that leads to guilt. Okay. God gave us a conscience for that purpose. And the only thing worse than a guilty conscience is no conscience, which happens sometimes when you fall completely off the wagon. Secondly, we are polluted with sin. Even when we're not sinning, There is sin within us. it's called our sin nature. This is distinct from the the sins that we commit. Uh, But this sin nature is what leads us to action and sin. Thirdly, sin is a universal problem. By that I mean it's a problem for everybody. It caused even the Son of God to sweat drops of blood, suffer agony, and finally, die on the cross. And then finally, we as Christians, we tend to classify sins as greater or lesser. Now, certainly in the Old and New Testament, there are examples of earthly consequences for some sins that are greater than others. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look in the New Testament at 1 Corinthians 6, where it says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have? You possess only from God. Now, we sometimes reason that the act of adultery is worse than lust. We even look at some actions, some sins, as worse than others. We sometimes reason, well, sodomy is worse than adultery because sodomy is unnatural. But adultery, it's got that redeeming quality of being natural. Now, And, and it's true. The effects of some sins are more apparent than others. AIDS, sexually transmitted diseases, broken marriages can all be earthly consequences of sexual sin just on a smaller scale, than Sodom and Gomorrah. Slight uh, diversions here. Speaking on the bigger scale, should we be surprised, given all that's happening in our culture today, to see God's judgment on the United States at the hands of terrorists or anarchists or perhaps even corrupt rulers? You know, I don't know why things have happened and I don't know what will happen. But I do know this, that that our God in His sovereignty allowed 9-11 to occur. And He allowed us to lose the definition of marriage. Could that be a wake-up call for the body of Christ? What do you think? Back to the individual level, in exhorting believers to not disengage from the world and the culture, Paul reminds all of us that our primary responsibility is to get our own house in order. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, which I believe is on your sheet, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside. You, you believers, you purge the evil person from among yourselves. So when somebody starts to compare their sins with the worst sins of others, we as believers should remember and say to ourselves, so what? Despite the earthly consequences, our better sins can earn us an admission ticket to hell just as easily as the sins of others. So this sin classification mentality, while it may provide us cover, We can feel better about ourselves. We would be far better off if we mind our own beeswax, our own business, and focus on the hard reality that because of what we are, because of my sins, the Son of God had to come down from heaven, he had to suffer and die on a cross for me. You see this carcass of old skin and bones? Whose is it? Who has the right to decide what's done with it? Well, I'm in physical possession. But Paul reminds me in 1 Corinthians 6 that I am not my own. For I was bought with a price. So I am to glorify God in my body. Yeah, we do have to make judgments about sin But instead of spending our time and energy judging folks in the world for acting just as we should expect them to act, we should rather be using our time and effort and and work to do what Jesus asks us to do. Be bright and pure lights to the world. Secondly, we want to understand the importance of the soul And it's destiny. Jesus says twice in this passage that you should get rid of one of your your body parts rather than to be cast into hell. Now, there's nothing wrong with an eye or a hand. Okay, God gave them to us to exemplify the many things in life that are good, right, and profitable. Jesus tells us, however, that if the good things in life are crowding out the best thing in life, we have to make a decision. To make his point even stronger, he said in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What's this? Is Jesus anti-family? No, no. Rather, what he's saying is if anything... Even your family comes between you and him or causes you to sin. We must forsake it. Get rid of it. Your soul and its destiny are more important than anything in this life. The most important things on earth, eye or hand or even your family must not become between you and your soul's destiny. Life here is important. And each believer has a purpose in whatever time God allows us here. However, if necessary, we are to become cripples in a sense in order to make certain that we get there. When we get there, we will stand in his presence with joy and glory. Now, if we do that, it may mean that we do without certain riches or certain achievements or accomplishment in this world. Let me make clear here there's nothing wrong with striving for excellence. And Christians should be the very best servants, the very best employees, the very best at whatever they do. However, there comes a point when excellence in a job, or music, or should I, may I say sports, can become an idol if it displaces our God-given purpose. Jesus put it this way to his disciples in Mark 8, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Here's the key. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus was not above casting fear to impart the correct perspective on priorities. In Matthew 10 it says, Do not fear those who can only kill the body but are, are unable to kill the soul. Instead, rather, Fear him him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell ok kind of serious next we've got to hate sin and do all possible to remove it from within you know Mike uh, previously had a similarly cheerful cheerfully entitled uh, series called God hates and we should We should hate sin. Uh, Psalm 97, hate evil, you who love the Lord. But to hate evil, we've got to be able to recognize it and call it out. Yeah, Paul tells us in Philippians 4 that whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good report, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. Yeah, those are the things we should dwell on and practice. Rather than the details of sin, but still, we must understand the warning signs and the consequences of sin found in God's Word. Now, we said last time, it's still true now. The doctrine of sin is really not very popular within the church. In the world, just using the word sin will bring at least a sideways glance, if not open rebuke. However, It is vital for the church, for you and me, to be taught and understand this concept. Sin is real. And it's in each one of us. Next, we've got to seek a clean heart. You know, within certain traditions, uh, certain Christians will give up doing something or eating something for a certain season. And, you know, I don't have a problem with that. You know, for discipline, fasting, or whatever. But the goal is not to avoid certain actions, cravings, or even sins. But the the primary goal is that our hearts are free from coveting and lust. However, you know, you and I really don't like to examine our hearts. Rather, we sit content because we're in a conservative or an evangelical church rather than those folks in the liberal mainline denominations. All the while, we commit sin in our own hearts, yet we look respectable. Nobody knows except God. You see, God judges the heart. Man only judges the outside because that's all he can judge. There are some simple things that you can do. I think uh, these are not fail-safe, but they're helpful, okay? Uh, you might just, and I hope you are, post Scriptures on your wall at home and at work. You know, young men, you don't have to have a, a nice frame with matting and all that or the fancy stuff. You can just print out in bold print off your printer on a piece of copy paper a Scripture and tape it to the wall. It's okay. It works. Filter your, your PCs and your devices so that they do not become Vices. Okay, uh, And we talked about that last time. Uh, there's stuff out there. You've got to do something to avoid them just popping up. But you can't rely upon that, parents and others. You've got to interpret the sins of the culture and train your children because they're going to be exposed to them. Uh, a good thing to do, display family photos. You know, at work, on your devices, whatever. So you can be reminded, I've got something right here on this earth that's worth being pure for be accountable to somebody be willing to allow somebody to ask you probing questions about where you are spiritually mike's mantra read your bible daily okay you've got to be doing that my mantra memorize and personalize scripture a great one in this area is first corinthians 10 13. No temptation has overtaken me that is not common to all men. But God is faithful and He will not allow me to be tempted beyond what I am able to resist. And with the temptation, He will provide a way of escape so that I can endure it. Get stuff like that in your heart so that when the temptation comes, you'll be able to respond to yourself one of the best passages on this subject is romans 6 and i want to challenge everybody in here whether a family or a single person to memorize and personalize romans 6 yeah the whole chapter you say oh can't that would take way too long much too hard and i say oh oh did you find time to shop this week To watch football, go to that important ladies' meeting, hang out with the guys, reality TV, Facebook. Now, memorization does not save us, but if I were to tell you that it putting the Word of God in your heart may just be what you or your children need to avoid Turning from Christ or giving your, yourself over to a life of sin or going to hell, might you be willing to reevaluate your priorities? Children, even very, very young children, have an amazing capacity to memorize Scripture. However, they won't, at least not without a grudging sense of hypocrisy if you dad and you mom don't do it with them. Why should they? Now this is not a message on parenting or devotions or memorization. But we all need to ask ourselves serious questions about our priorities in life. Next and there's the main point. We've got to figure out how To kill sin. When do we need to kill sin? Always. You know, Paul admits this in Romans 7 when he says, On the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. What does it mean to kill sin? Well, let's go to another passage in uh, Matthew chapter 18. Within an exhortation against causing others particularly the young to to stumble Jesus says similarly if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble cut it off throw it away from you it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be cast into the eternal fire If your hand causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. Better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Now, in both Matthew 5 and 18, this dramatic use of this figure of speech calls for ruthless ruthless self-denial. It's not mutilation, but what we call mortification. You've heard that word, when somebody dies, you go to see the mortician. Morse is Latin for death. Okay? If somebody says, I was mortified, what they mean is, I was so embarrassed I wanted to die. Not really, but that's what they say. Okay? That's what we're talking about here. And in the Bible, mortification is a synonym for taking up the cross, to die to sinful practices, put them to death. Now, the eye is used in Matthew because it looks and it lusts. The hand is used because that's what we do to carry out our sin. The foot is used because we when we're tempted we kind of turn, we might start to stroll, we might run flat out to sin. Why in Matthew 5 does God say refer to, or does Jesus refer to the right hand and the right eye? Well, if You're a normal group, and I realize that's a question. Uh, Three-quarters of you are right-handed. And at least two-thirds of you are right-eyed, meaning you rely upon the right hand or the right eye more than you do the other. Uh, So what Jesus is saying here is that the parts that you rely upon are most important to you are not off-limits if they cause you to sin. Now... Uh, Some have taken this uh, passage, these two passages, literally and amputated bodily organs. The third century theologian, Origen of Alexander, actually castrated himself to avoid temptation. Now, wait, happily, if we follow Origen's example, you know... uh, we're not going to propagate. We're not going <laughs> to increase. And all that biblical teaching about marriage and, and sex and all that is pretty much meaningless. Uh, so the issue here is not removal of body parts. You know, if, if I take out my one eye, I still got the other one to, to lust with. Or if I take out both of them, I, I can still lust in my mind. Uh, we've got to take whatever is necessary, whatever steps are necessary to deal with sin. You know, our tendency is to draw a line in the sand and to see how close we can get to it. And in the process, we often kick enough sand or the line that it vanishes. Instead of flirting or nibbling at the edges, as legalists tend to do, we need to hate sin and dig it out. Now, this concept of mortification or killing sin is emphasized over and over in the word. In Colossians 3, uh, it says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Romans 8, So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death or mortifying the deeds of the body, you will live. The the culture tends to treat those caught up in sin as victims. And it's true that we can identify correlations between certain environments, parenting, physical, emotional, and substance abuses, even genetics, seem to be associated with various sins which resemble a cause and effect relationship now i'm not poo-pooing this as psychobabble okay in fact i recently heard a radio broadcast between dr kevin layman and dr james dobson in which they were talking about how early and earliest childhood memories can tell you a lot about somebody and dobson had very warm and 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 good feelings about his early childhood memories. He could even remember being held as an infant and the smells and everything. We know what happened to him. But there's another very famous person who recorded that his earliest memories were of his father beating him over and over again and with every blow resolving never to cry. That was Adolf Hitler. Now, this is anecdotal, but do you suppose that those fathers or those parents of those two men affected them? I think so. I think if we were to pool our our knowledge here, we could come up with thousands of examples where something about their upbringing or their environment affected them. However, was Hitler's father responsible for the hateful murder of millions? No more so than Dobson's parents can claim credit for what he did for families. See, they both made choices. So the fact remains that we, as the victims of sin, are not passive victims. We all choose to sin. Whatever our genetic weakness, whatever our blind spots, our motivations, our background, our upbringing. It's important very important to identify those areas in which we're weak and to put up hedges. I mean, points at which we're not going to go because we know because of our weaknesses if we go there, we're going to be tempted. It's important to do that. If we pay as much attention to righteousness as we do to coming up with excuses for our sins, we'd be a whole lot better. So how can we kill sin day by day? First one is never the flesh. Paul tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Each of us again has a fire inside. Perhaps it's just smoldering. But we don't throw on wood and certainly not gasoline. Practical application here. If temptation comes to you through the eye gate pluck out your eye. In other words, don't look. Okay. Behave as if you're blind and you can't see what tempts you. If you do things with your hands or you go places with your feet that cause temptations, don't do. Don't go. Act as if you're crippled and simply cannot do the things or go to the places which cause you to sin. This is mortification. Seems simple, doesn't it? Then why do we continue to look, do, and go? Now, uh, I understand it's different for men or different for women, but all the guys in here know that in this world, you cannot avoid either innocently, inadvertently, or intentionally seeing something that tempts you, whether it's billboards, uh, the internet, the way that women dress or don't dress, all those things out there are pretty much unavoidable. So the best that you can do in this kind of a situation is don't. Take the second look. This mortification or sexual self-control comes more naturally to some than to others. So if you're one who is not really tempted that much by sexual content or images, you may still need to refrain from exposure out of loving concern for those who have weak consciences or weaker wills that may be around you. We each have an obligation to protect weaker believers in our midst. If you're one who is tempted and you want to continue to kill sin, you must not take in anything through any means. The eye gate, the ear gate that will tempt you. You've got to stay away from stuff like books, movies, TVs, radio, billboards, websites, even the news sometimes, certain activities, commercials. You know, you ever wonder why we have all these images and salacious accounts of who did what with or to their bodies? Why they're so common? Well, the answer is because skin sells. You can count on the fact that someone will profit from that mere look, even if it's only the the advertisements around the image. But you might say, I didn't pay pay a dime for that peak. Oh, You paid in your spirit. You paid you paid in the continuing images that are going to come to your mind. You paid in the temptations, those images and how they cause you to act out and perhaps even satisfy that temptation. Even if you don't act out, you pay by guilt just from thinking about those things because the fire has more fuel. You know people say, "Well, but everybody's doing it. Everybody's watching it, they're talking about it. They're going to see it, the movie or whatever. And I don't want to be people to think that I'm ignorant or that I'm out of it. Out of what? The fire? What's more important? Eternity or time in this world. Purity or the culture. To follow Jesus or follow the crowd? Now, I want to give a caution here. Um, we've got to take care not to get into just following rules. So uh, let's take a look at what Peter says in, chapter, in 1 Peter 1. He, here, Peter is speaking to believers here. And he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy." The goal here is not to follow rules, but to always be concerned about pleasing and glorifying God, always seeking His best for our lives. Another way to say this is to be holy. Now, holy is one of those spiritual words that we don't hear much from Christians anymore. Perhaps we don't feel worthy. Perhaps we don't want to sound like we're self-righteous by using that word. Perhaps it's just old school. I don't know, but for whatever the reason, Peter reminds us that God uses that word repeatedly and it is what he expects from each one of us. If that is our focus, if we remind ourselves that we are not here living our lives for us, but rather for him, if we are holy, holy-minded, holy-acting, we don't have to worry about following specific rules. Secondly, we've got to deliberately restrain the flesh. In 1 Corinthians 9, it says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way, not as beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. A.K.A. called a hypocrite. Paul calls us to intentionally prepare ourselves for specific physical challenges, particularly temptations. Now, question Do we do this? Or does the Holy Spirit do it? The answer is yes. Okay? Romans 8 If you, through the Spirit, mortify the deeds of your body, you shall live. We have an absolute need for the Holy Spirit. His power and the help that He can bring us. And it is available to each and every believer in Christ. But we, you and I, must specifically take action. We can't accuse the Holy Spirit of negligence if we fall into sin. Okay, The whole picture is laid out in one little verse, Philippians two thirteen. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. We prepare, we discipline our bodies, we set up hedges, God provides the will through his Holy Spirit, then we have to exercise that will to do his good pleasure. If we attempt to mortify sin in our own strength and power, that's not holiness. But if we realize the power and the true nature of sin, its grip on humanity, its polluting effect, Then we understand that you and I are truly poor in spirit. Incapable on our own. And so we must plead for the Holy Spirit to empower us. That power itself will pluck out the eye. It'll cut off the hand. It'll mortify the flesh. Meanwhile, he continues to work in us and through the Holy Spirit. And we continue here. It's where we are. God wants us. Until we see him face to face, until we stand in his presence, faultless and blameless, without spot and without rebuke. Now, you might ask, how can I, a sinner, be blameless? And that takes us to the last point here. We must remember the price paid to deliver us from sin. Could there be any greater motivation? to mortify or to kill sin than this. I want you to do something here we don't often do. I want you to just close your eyes right now. I want you to listen to the words of Peter. Personalized. For I have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for me. leaving an example for me to follow in His steps who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds I was healed. Isaac Watts 300 years ago wrote that this little baby lying in a manger whom we celebrate this season embodies a love so amazing, so divine that it demands my soul, my life, my all. Father God, we know that you love us. We know that because despite our sinful natures, despite our specific sins, despite that we deserve to burn in hell, you gave us Jesus Christ. And for your perfect justice, you satisfied that debt that we owed, and we could not pay, by putting Him on the cross, a spotless lamb, to pay that price. And more than that, Lord, you gave us assurance. You gave us security because he rose from the dead. Father, thank you. Help us to take seriously the nature of sin. Help us to understand how important our soul is and its destiny. Help us to understand how we are to kill sin day in and day out. Father, be real in our lives and help us to glorify you to do your best in every area of our lives we give you all the praise and all the glory in the precious and holy name of that little baby and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.